All right, if you'll be opening your Bibles to the 33rd chapter of the book of Exodus. I'm going to get through a couple chapters today. Not exactly sure how many more weeks we have, but uh, I think we got a couple. A couple, three maybe. End of August. That'd be next week. I better get with it. Flashback to the 32nd chapter, and you will remember what's been going on in the 32nd chapter. Golden calf. And at the end of the 32nd chapter, God is not happy. He's not happy with the people. He's not happy with the way that they've treated him. Moses came down from the mountain, threw the tablets of stone, and broke them, and effectively did what? Broke the covenant. Broke the covenant, broke the covenant, broke the relationship with God that they had to see that that he had established with God on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And in one fell swoop, the people shattered the covenant with God. First, first thing out of the first thing out of the bucket. Not hadn't even gotten the tablets down the mountain. The people had already sinned a great sin. Moses broke the tablets, thus effectively breaking the covenant with God. And God, as you can well imagine, not happy. Verse 34 of chapter 32, as we ended up the 32nd chapter. Now therefore go and lead the people to the place of which I have spoken to you. Remember that at the beginning of this chapter, or down this chapter, God talks to him and he says, the people that you led out. So God's not even taking, God's not even taking responsibility for leading them out of Egypt. He's saying, these are the people you led out. These are your people. And so he says, Behold, he's going to send an angel. My angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they had did, what they did with the calf which Aaron made. So that brings us to the beginning of the 33rd chapter. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart. And go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Now, did Moses bring the people out of the land of Egypt? No. Who brought them out? God brought them out. He brought them out with a mighty hand. He defeated Pharaoh. He has shown his power to these people time and time and time again. And he's had it with them. He's, he's, he's up to here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, and the cat just jumped out of the fire. And so we must worship it because it jumped out of the fire at us. Yeah. What did you do? Now, we talked about that, I think, the last time we were together. What did you do? And so God says, I'm not going to break my promise. God is a God of promises. He made a promise to the people to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. He's not going to break his promise. He says, depart and go up from here. Where are they at? They're at Mount Horeb. They're at the Mount of God. You and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. So God is not relinquishing his promise. He is a God of promises. What he said, he can't lie. What he says he'll do, he'll do. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later on. Sin and its consequences. 
Okay, a lot of times sin is committed and sin is forgiven, but consequences last long after. And so he tells Moses now what the new operating instructions are for what the people will do. He said, I will send my angel. Well, originally he was going to go with him. I'll be your God. I'll, I'll, I'll go with you. I'll send an angel out in front of you to take care of all these people in the land. Well, now he's just going to send the angel. So I'm going, to send the, I'm going to send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And he says, you'll go up into a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go in your midst. Now imagine you're hearing those words from God. I'm not, I'm not going to go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this news, they mourned, and no one put on any ornaments. And that's, as much as I could read in the Old Testament, that's the last time the children of Israel wore any ornamenture at all. They didn't wear any ornaments after that. Now, I don't know if it was because of this, or if it was because of something else. Remember later on, or at some point, again, Moses is going to ask the people to do what with all the stuff that they brought out of Egypt, the gold and, and everything? What's he going to ask them to do? He's going to give it as a what? What kind of an offering? Free will. Free will offering. Those, he says, give what you are, what, you, what free will, a free will offering which you'll, that you'll give. So give it up. I'm not telling you how much to give. God doesn't tell us how much to give today. What does he tell us? What are his instructions for giving today? You're to lay by in store as you've been prospered. So I've been prospered. I've been prospered a lot. How much am I supposed to give? I'm supposed to give a lot. I lost my job this week. I don't have two, two nickels to rub together. I've not been prospered a lot this week. God's not going to expect anything from you. But then you read the story of the widow's might. Sometimes, sometimes giving when you're in your hardest place means more to God, right? So God's finished with them. He's, he's done with them. They've, they've, they've committed a sin from which they're not going to be able to back out of this one. They violated a commandment, and not any commandment, the very first commandment, for I will not go up with you in your midst, he says in verse 3, lest I consume you on the way. Because he knows, he knows they're going to do something else that's just going to aggravate him again. And they're going to push him to a point where he's just going to consume the whole people. Like he told Moses, he said, I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of all these people. I'm, I'm just going to kill them all, and I'm going to make your seed the promised seed. So what does God, in all of this, what, is God, what does God think of Moses? Because the focus of all of our study thus far has been about Moses and about his leadership, and he's a man of failings, we know that. But what is God's relationship with Moses? Right now and previous to this, what, what has been his relationship with Moses? Is it Well, first of all, is it a good relationship or a bad relationship? It's a good relationship. God is about, uh, Moses is about the only one that God has, ha, has had really anything to do with because Moses at least follows the instructions. Okay, he doesn't follow the instructions one time, and it costs him dearly. So it's a lesson for us. God's will, God's word needs to be obeyed. Not in the biggest things, but in the smallest things. And so 
what these two chapters, chapters 33 and 34, talk about are looking at microscopic view of the leadership of Moses and what Moses brings to the table in his relationship with God. And also, more than anything in these two chapters, what kind of a God is the God we serve? And I think it comes out very clearly in these two chapters, and it it etches its way all the way through the Old Testament and into the New, that the type of God we serve is very well demonstrated in in these two chapters. So, what did the people say? Don't even look at verse 4. Don't even look at verse 4. What do you think the reaction of the people was when they heard this? Yeah. They're sad. They're devastated. God has led them to the red, God has led them to the to the, the parting of the, the Gulf of Aqaba. He's led them across the He's led them across the Red Sea on dry land. If you go back and you read the Song of Moses, they talk about the fact that, oh, how great God is and, and how we'll follow him to the end. And then not five verses later, they're murmuring. And they're complaining. And that's a lesson for us today, too. And if we have time, we'll talk about that today also. So when the people heard this bad news, verse 4, chapter 33, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And in verse 6 we see, so the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So now we're at Mount, now we're at Mount Horeb. Now it's being called the right thing, Mount Horeb, not Mount Sinai, although it's called Sinai. It's called by two names. It's not the Sinai on the on the the the, the peninsula there, it's the Sinai that's in Saudi Arabia today. At least that's that's how I follow it because Moses was told to bring the children of Israel back to this mountain which is where they would worship. And that was Mount Horeb which is called the mountain of God. For the Lord said to Moses, verse 5, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I would come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. And again, I can find nowhere else in the Old Testament where they ever wore the, the children of Israel during this period of wandering ever put, ever put the ornaments on again. So say to the children of Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. Define what a stiff-necked person is. You know anybody who's stiff-necked? Hmm? Okay, stubborn, my way or the highway. Our kids ever, our kids ever want to be stiff-necked? Are they ever want to be children to be stiff-necked? I don't want to do that. I want to do things my way. I know, I know that's what you want me to do, but that's not what I want to do. That's a stiff-necked child. Now I asked some of the people, and I asked some of the people a couple of weeks ago um, because one of the illustrations that I read, and I'm not a equestrian, I don't ride horses, never have. For people who ride horses, who are round horses, though, if you have a horse who's considered stiff-necked, when you go to turn the horse to the left or the right, the horse just keeps going where it wants to go, and so you have to do something to get the horse to turn. I don't know. That's the only example that I was that I read of an animal being stiff-necked, but I know plenty of people who are stiff-necked. So now we have the stages set. The people understand that God has removed Himself from being with them because of what they did with the golden calf. So now, verse seven. Moses takes his tent, 
And he pitches his tent outside the camp, where traditionally, and we'll see this in a week or so, if we have that many more weeks left, we'll see in a week or so, where does Moses, where does Moses, where does Moses and his family usually pitch their tents? Close to what? If you read into numbers about everything and how, how and we'll, we'll talk about that in a week or so. But for those of you who, who do know, where do, they, where do they pitch their tents? Near the tabernacle. Okay, so their home, their tents are always pitched in the center. So the tabernacle is always in the center. And so if you think about it, the tabernacle is always in the center of the encampment. Why is it in the center? That's where God is. God is the center. He's in the center. He's in the center of your life. He's not some peripheral person that you just call on when you're having a bad day. He's in the center of the camp. And Moses, Kohath, and the rest of the sons of Moses and Aaron all live around. They camp around that. And then on the periphery of these are the other tribes. And if you look at numbers, and we're going to look at that in a, in a couple weeks, because there's something very, out, very astounding about those numbers. If you look at them and you examine them, there's something very astounding about those numbers. And it's worth your while to read into the book of Numbers to find out how he numbers how he numbers the people and how they're arranged with regard to the tabernacle, which is in the center. We'll talk about that later. So he doesn't do that now. Because the tabernacle hasn't, hasn't been constructed yet. That's yet to come. So he takes his tent and he pitches it outside the camp. Okay, what's usually, what's usually done to something or someone who's outside the camp? They're unclean. If there's sin in the camp, it's removed and it's put outside the camp. Well, Moses, well, he's just going to take his tent. He's going to pitch it outside the camp because... These people aren't worth having, worth having a, a tent of meeting pitched within them. These are, These are idolaters. They're idol worshipers. And so he's going to take his tent, and he's going to pitch it outside the camp, far, it says. To intensify the moment, he's not only pitching it outside the tent, he's going far, far from the camp. He's trying to get as far away from sin as possible. These people are idolaters. And God would just as readily consume them as anything else. So Moses is going to take his tent and he's going to pitch it outside the camp, far from the camp. Now he calls this a tabernacle of meeting. This is not the tabernacle. This is a tabernacle of meeting. If you look up tabernacle of meeting in the Old Testament, if you search your concordance for tabernacle of meeting, 146 times that term is used in the Old Testament. It's tabernacle of meeting. It is not the tabernacle. It's a tabernacle of meeting. Okay? came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. He really is going to great lengths to emphasize that this is not inside the camp. He, he, he's going to a great length of discussion to say this is far from the camp. He's pitching it as far from away for these sinful people as possible. So it was. Whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, what happened? All the people arose and each man stood at the tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. What would you guess the people are feeling at this point in time? But what are they feeling? They're standing in their doorways. They're not even able to, to approach to worship now. It would, be like, it would be like you not being able to come into this assembly and having to stand outside the door and, and just look in. How would you feel? Shame. Rejection. 
I've sinned against God. And my sin is great. They stood in the doorway of their tent. And they stood there till he went into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, when he entered the tabernacle, what happened? The cloud came down on that tent, on that tabernacle door. Or it came down on that tabernacle of meeting. It descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And God talked with Moses. So put yourself, put yourself back in that time. You're one of these people. I'm sta- you're standing in your doorway. You're an idolater. You send a great sin against your God. You're standing in the doorway, and you're watching the cloud with God inside descend on Moses' tabernacle of meeting, and he's talking with Moses. But you don't get to hear what's going on. You, you don't get to hear because you've fallen away. You've sinned. All the people saw the pillar of cloud. All of, they saw it. They're standing in their doorways. They saw it happen. They saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped. Each man at his tent door. Going to do any good? We don't know. We have yet to find out. Verse 11 of this chapter gives probably the clearest definition of Moses' relationship with our father. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That, that, should have, that, should have, that should have some kind of a profound effect on you. If you're a child of God, you can speak to God. If someone, who, if someone prays who's not a Christian, if they pray a prayer, what does the New Testament say about that prayer? Does God hear it? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. God does not to hear the prayer of sinners. Not unless that sinner has decided to change their life, repent of their sins, and confess him and be baptized. The alien sinner is not heard by the Father. Not to the best of my understanding of Scripture. It would be like someone coming to your front door, knocking on your front door, and you open in the door, and this person says, I'm your child. I'm your child. Don't you know me? What would you say? I don't know you. You're a stranger. Well, can I come in and eat some dinner with you? Can't you, can't you give me some money? I'm your child. No, you're not. You're a stranger. Face to face. There's a song in our songbook. Face to face. Face to face, how will it be when I meet my Redeemer? You're going to meet him. One of these days, by and by, you're going to meet him face to face. He's your Savior now. But there will be a day coming when he'll be your judge. You will meet him face to face. It's a promise. God cannot lie. You will meet your Savior face to face. And I hope when you meet him that he'll talk with you as a friend. Like he does Moses. I think that's one of the most faith-confirming verses that you can read. 
He would return to the camp. This is interesting. Moses would come out of the meeting of Tabernacle and he'd go back to the camp. Who stayed in the tent? Of, who stayed? Who stayed in the meeting? The, the, the meeting of Tabernacle, the Tabernacle of meeting. Who stayed there and did not depart? Joshua, the son of Nun. Joshua's story has only just begun. That's someone who, who doesn't leave. He doesn't, he doesn't leave. He doesn't leave the church building. He's there all the time. Not doesn't say he's talking with God. I'm not sure what he's doing, but it has some significance because he did not depart. He did not depart from the tabernacle. What is your relationship this morning with God? We see Moses' relationship. He talks with Moses face to face as one would talk to a friend. What's your relationship with Moses? What's your relationship with God this morning? Are you ready to quit on him? Things just haven't gone right for you, and so you're just gonna just gonna kick him down the road until things get better. Are you pleasing to God? Are you able to talk to God face to face? Are you able for him to call you his friend? What did Jesus say? You are my friend if you do what I say, do what I command. Want to be a friend with God? Do what he says. When he says it, how he says to do it, neither to the left or to the right. Just do what he says. Christianity is so simple. It's so simple. Yet people make it so hard on themselves because their will steps in and says, well, I, I'd like to do that, but I think I want to do it this way. You can't have a friend like God if you're not going to do what he, what he says, what he wants. If you're my friend and you tell me you're going to do something and you don't do it, how long will you stay my friend? Not long. So in verse 12, we start a separate section. Now, God and Moses have talked, and Moses is of a very clear understanding that God is not happy. He's not happy. He's basically, uh, he's basically said, that these, these, these people can just go. I'll send my angel because I promised to do it. I'll send my angel but I'm not having anything to do with them. I'm not having anything to do. Moses says to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people. Okay. Now he's putting it back on God. Because God had said, these people you let out. So Moses says, you said to me, bring up this people. But you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you, that I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And God says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For now then, will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us. See, your people. He's, he's putting it back on God. Your people. And I have found grace in your sight except you go with us. So if you don't go with us, we don't, you don't, we, we know we don't have your grace. So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. 
And so the Lord says to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken before you, before, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So he's not doing it for the people. He's doing it because of his relationship with Moses, right? Who shall I say sent you? Who shall I say sent me? I am. So now he asks, in verse 17, God says, I will, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you found grace in my sight. So God is now reconsidering, because I know you by name. Now, what does Moses ask him in verse 18? Why? Why does Moses ask God to show him your glory? Show me your glory. He's asking for he's asking for a, a, an example. He's asking for he's asking for some sign. Yeah, show me your glory. Well, what do we know? What do we know about God and people being able to see God? No man has ever seen God and lived, right? No man has ever seen God and lived. John 1:18. No man has seen God at any time. John 6:46 No man has seen the Father but if you saw if you were alive when Christ was living you saw God because you saw the Son In 1 John 4:12 No man has beheld God at any time And God's pretty much a stickler on this Why cannot God appear to us in his glory Why could he not appear to God Why could he not appear to Moses in his glory Sorry? Okay. He's too great. Expound on that. Okay. We know he's great. What, what does that mean? That's, that's the point. Why does glimpsing God's glory, no man can see God and live? What is God? What is man? God is holy. Man is a sinful. Man is sinful. We can't see God. His glory would consume us. Will we see God face to face one day? Yes. But we'll be different. We'll be different. We'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be changed forever. We'll put off this corruptible. We'll put on incorruptible. And at that point, we can behold the glory of God. Sinful man cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. It's a simple fact. God cannot look upon sin. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What does that mean? He's carrying the sins of your sins, my sins. He's carrying our sins on his back. And God can't look at that. God had to turn away from his only son because he was carrying your sins and he was carrying my sins and God couldn't look at him because God is holy and he cannot look upon evil. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. It wasn't that Moses was a bad person. Moses was a man. He was sinful. He could not see God's face. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you will stand on the rock. So it shall be when my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand while I pass by. And then I will take my hand away and you will see only my back, but my face shall not be seen. Next time you sing, a wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Think about this. So God is going to hold him and cover him in the cleft of the rock as he passes by. And he's going to remove his hand so that he can see God's back. Would that be sufficient for you? Would it be sufficient for you to see God's back? It would be sufficient for me. I know I can't behold his glory because I'm sinful. But he could hide me in the cleft of the rock. I'd be satisfied with that. I'd be satisfied with that. This teaches a very important lesson that I think a lot of people sometimes overlook. And I think that lesson is God always gives us what we need and not what we want. What did Moses want? What did Moses want? He wanted to see God's glory. Had he not seen enough of God's glory already? The result of God's glory, the angel of death passing over, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, would that not have been sufficient to see God's glory? A pillar of fire, a pillar of smoke, him leading the way for the children out of of Egypt, was that not sufficient for Moses? He's just a man like we are. He wants something more. And God gave him what he needed not what he wanted. You know, cars come to us and they're not built that we put oil into them. They come with oil. The manufacturers put in stuff that's needed. And so it is with anything. Stuff we buy, air conditioners, come with Freon. Things come with things that you need to make those things work. So it is with God. He gives us everything that we need. He speaks to our needs, not to our wants. Be content with what you have. Something modern society is not paying much attention to these days. Modern society speaks to your wants, not to your needs. Modern society misses it. God's children should not. So, chapter 34. God is now going to reestablish that covenant. Because of what Moses has done, because of what Moses has entreated the Father to do, God is going to reestablish the covenant with the people. Okay? So, there's 34, chapter 34, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. What's different about this? 
What's different about this than the first time? Huh? God cut the stone the first time. Now Moses has got to do the heavy lifting. Now Moses has got to cut the tablets out. I think that's I think that's instrumental. I think it's informative. I did this the first time, and you all messed it up. I'm going to do it again. you got to do the work. Right. right. Do, you see that as, do you see that as a breaking of the covenant? I mean, that's how I've always seen it. Does somebody see that different? Is just a, is that just a, was that just his anger that overtook him, or did he, did he, physically, did he just physically break the, the covenant with God, is that, or is that just representative? What do you think? Isn't that interesting because God told him God told him what was going on. He said, "Get back down the mountain. These people, these people of yours are have really messed it up." Would he, should he have been so surprised? I mean, God did tell him. If you go back and read that, even as he got halfway down the mountain, who did he meet halfway down the mountain? Met Joshua, didn't he? Halfway down the mountain, Joshua said, "I I thought there was sound of battle in the camp." But it's singing and dancing and playing and drinking and dining. The Epicurean philosophy, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Truer words have never been spoken. So in this reestablishment of the, of, the, of the covenant, the covenant was not broken by God. Who broke the covenant? The children of Israel broke it. So God did it the first time. He cut out the stones. Moses has to do it this time. Be ready in the morning. Come up to the mountain. Gives him another set of clear instructions. Present yourself to me at the top of the mountain. No man shall come up. Let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither the flocks nor the herds feed from that mountain. So Moses did as he was told. He cut the two stablets of stone like the first ones. Then he arose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai. This is, Mount, this is the mountain of God as the Lord had commanded him. And yes, there are probably two Mount Sinai's. There's the one that's traditionally the Mount Sinai, which is, was established by the, the Holy Roman Catholic Church in the, in the 1500s, 1400s. And then there's the one that's in Saudi Arabia that's probably the real mountain of God. He went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hands the two tablets of stone. God descends in a cloud, stands by him, and proclaims the name of God. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Look at verses 6 and 7. These are very instructive. And the Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Now look at those characteristics. In the New Testament, those characteristics belong to who? Hmm? They belong to Jesus, but who, who, all, who are they also suppo- supposed to belong to? Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth. Who are they supposed to? Huh? Christians. They're supposed to belong. That, that's, those are the traits of being a Christian. Go over and read the book of Galatians. Read the book of Ephesians. That, that's, that's where you get the, that's where you get the, 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 fruits of the, the fruits of the Spirit. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Is, is God bragging here? Is God bragging about what he can do? Can God ever be accused of bragging? 
You go to the doctor. On the wall is the doctor's what? His certificate, his diploma. Now, I'm a doctor. Is he bragging? No, it's a statement of fact. Roger hangs a, Roger hangs a thing on his wall says, I'm an accountant. Is he bragging? Well, in his case, probably, yeah, but no. Um, he's not bragging. It's a statement of fact. I'm an accountant. I know, I know that one and one equals two. That's what accountants do. They count beans all day long. They're bean counters. My wife is a pharmacist. They accuse her of being a pill counter. She's not a pill counter. Please don't ever call her a pill counter. You will incur her undying wrath. She's not a pill counter. It's not bragging. God is saying, this is who I am. This is who I am. I'm all of these positive things, and then I'm all of these other things that aren't so good, visiting the iniquity of the children. Mike? It's not bragging if you can do it. I've tried that one also. That one also doesn't work real well. So, visiting the iniquity of the, the father on the... What does that mean? What does that mean as we close out today? All sin, that's so excellent that you don't even need to add to that. All sins cast long shadows. The father who's a drunk. I've heard stories of people who have been alcoholics for most of their lives. They, are, they encounter Christ. They become Christians. They change their lives. But they still die of cirrhosis of the liver. Sin has consequences. You kill somebody's child in an automobile accident, whether purposely or accidentally. You live with that sin. You live with that accident. It may not be sin, but you live with the consequences of that action for the rest of your life. Sin has consequences. Sometimes the consequences are instantaneous. Sometimes the consequences are long, long term. Yes, ma'am. No, 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 no. If a man is a drunkard and he sees his way and converts to Christ, becomes a Christian, I have no reason to believe that he can't be saved. But the consequences of that long-term abuse will live with him and his family forever. A child who grows up in an abusive relationship with their parents, clinical psychologists tell us that that child is apt to repeat those behaviors as an adult. Sin has consequences. Sin can be forgiven. Sin can be forgiven, but the consequences of that sin may last a long time. Look at David and Bathsheba. What did that poor baby have anything to do with any of that? That baby had nothing to do with that. That's the consequence of sin. He lost a child because of his inability to do what he's supposed to do. Sin has consequences long, long after. So you'll see in the rest of 34, just go down, back down to 34, the covenant's renewed, vending in verse 10. What you'll find there, he's just reiterating the Ten Commandments. This is what I told you before. This is what I'm telling you now. Nothing's changed. Everything is reinforced. Now, at the end, Verse 29, read down through the rest of that and look at Moses' face when he comes down, when he comes back from talking to God. What does his face do? His face shines. But the face 
His sh- the shining of his face is only when he's talking with God. He has to wear a veil. Okay? Now, as you read that last part of 34, verses 29 down through the end of the chapter, put in your notes 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Moses had to wear a veil because the people could not look on his face because it shone. But over time, that, the shining of his face diminished. And Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians. He talks about the fact that Jesus removed that veil. The veil was on, the, the shining of his face was only temporary because the law was only temporary. The covenant was only temporary until a better covenant came along. Okay? So be sure and read 34, chapter 34, verses 29 down through 35, through the end of the chapter. And then juxtapose that in your study, because we're out of time. But juxtapose that with 2 Corinthians 3, 11 through 18. Okay? That's, That's Paul talking about this chapter and how it's relevant to the New Testament Christian today. Okay? And we'll see you next week. Good Lord and Lord.